Hello and welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 15. I'm Daniel Randall, the assistant chairperson of the London branch of the Stan Weir fan club, and I'm joined as usual by Professor Edmund the Brain Mustill, Ellie Acab Clark, and our producer Liam McAnulty, the author of a forthcoming book on the legacy of James Connolly. Some of that was true. Um, it's been a little while since uh, the last show in what we might call a kind of traditional studio format, following our recent experiment with recording a live episode, which we hope you enjoyed. Uh, we've got some exciting news about another forthcoming live podcast, which we'll be recording in September, uh, and we'll tell you a little bit more about that later on. Um, but first, let's uh, let's go around the room just to remind all our loyal listeners what we sound like, uh, and to, to give you an update on what we've been doing since the last episode of the podcast. So, Ellie, over to you. So hi, I'm Ellie, as Dan said, and um, what I've mostly been focusing on recently is uh, expanding my thinking, and maybe our thinking a little bit, on the crime and policing stuff that we were talking about in episode 13. That's exactly right. So I've been speaking at a lot of meetings about that, I've been trying to read, I've been trying to write, those sorts of things, and a little bit later, I'm going to talk about a prison strike that's currently happening in America, which is of course a related topic. But before that, let's hand over to Ed and see what he's been up to. Does this have to be what we've been up to politically? Or I mean, you can. I mean, you can. Yeah. You can tell us what you had. Do we for want tea to keep it PG? Keep it PG. <laughs> well, my my dinners actually for the last week have been, uh, have been uh, uniformly unhealthy, so I'd rather not go into that. Okay. Now, I've been I've been doing uh, I've been doing a lot of labour party stuff because in in my job I'm still kind of new and I'm uh, sort of just finding sus- your feet, sussing it out. Um, yeah, so as part of my ongoing collapse into the opportunistic swamp of social democracy, I've <laughs> been doing quite a lot of Labour Party activity uh, over the summer, and um, you know, obviously, we haven't really addressed this on the podcast, but Brexit is the big issue. Mm. Maybe it might be worth having a, having something about that in terms of how it relates to trade unions at some point. Very possibly, or or just having an episode dedicated to excoriating you for, for that opportunistic collapse into yeah yeah social a bit of uh, revolutionary self-criticism exactly yeah. Uh, yeah. C- coming up uh, in a future episode well what one thing i've been involved in um since uh, we were last on the air so to speak that um, i wanted to flag up is uh, the winning at work project which was facilitated by the left-wing think tank uh, the new economics foundation that was aimed at bringing together worker activists involved in uh, particularly in kind of precarious worker organizing so that included people from um, united voices of the world um the independent workers union of great britain the iwgb um unite their like hotel workers branch their bar and restaurant workers branch some of the um picture cinema workers some folks from the iww some kind of casualized he workers from ucu and uh, some london underground cleaners and others from my own union RMT. Um, that project culminated in a really great conference on uh, Saturday the 18th of August, which is last Saturday as we're recording, or the Saturday before? Last Saturday. The weeks blur into one. Um, that I was really proud to have been uh, involved in co-organising, so I just wanted to mention that really. Um, a, a special solidarity salute should go to uh, Becky and Stefan from uh, NEF for their role in the project. And there'll be some follow-up coming out of that conference, including some some films that have been produced as part of the overall project and uh, we'll link to those in the episode description. Uh, But for now, on with the show. 
This is Labour. 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 So in today's episode, we'll be discussing uh, recent walkouts of teachers and other education workers in so-called red states uh, in America. That's Republican voting states such as Kentucky, Oklahoma and elsewhere. Uh, the centrepiece of the episode today is um, an interview with Lois Wiener um, that I conducted along with Kathy Nugent, who's the editor of the socialist newspaper Solidarity, whose voice you'll also hear in the interview. Uh, Lois is a socialist and labour movement activist uh, from America, focusing particularly on uh, teacher trade unionism. She's retired now, but is a former teacher herself. Uh, she's the author of the book The Future of Our Schools, Teachers, Unions and Social Justice, which was published by Haymarket Books. And she's a member of the editorial board of the socialist journal New Politics, which was co-founded uh, uh, way, way back in the 1960s by our old pal Hal Draper. Um, the, the interview is a, is a real kind of deep dive into some of the political background to the red state walkouts and some of the organisational and strategic challenges facing education workers. Um, Lois also situates those struggles in the context of the ongoing fight to revive and transform the wider American labour movement. Um, it's, it's probably not necessarily what you'd call a sort of entry-level approach to the subject and does maybe assume some prior knowledge um, about the context. So for the benefit of listeners who might not necessarily have that prior knowledge, um, I'm going to hand, hand back over to Ed just to give us some background. This is the prior knowledge. <laughs> Co coming conveniently directly before the interview. There we go. <laughs> um, so in April of this year, almost half of the school bus drivers in DeKalb County, Georgia, called in sick for work uh, three days in a row. Uh, the coordinated sick out was an attempt to bring school administrators to the table to address concerns about pay and pensions. This came off the back of the uh, teachers' war, what came to be known as the teachers' walkouts, although it's a bit more complex than that, as I'll mention, um, that started in February, March in, in the areas that Daniel just mentioned. Um, school workers are currently at the centre of union militancy in the United States, uh, the radical Chicago Teachers Union strike of 2012 made international headlines and was very successful. Uh, it was also a, a very, very interesting model of how uh, an industrial dispute can uh, mobilise support across like broad sections of the working class in society, but, but also remain very much like a, an industrial strike, which is, which is where it gets its power from. Um, so a number of different forms of industrial action have uh, swept through schools in the, in the so-called red states. Um, in some cases, these states have very repressive labour laws, and uh, in some it's even uh, uh, public sector workers are banned from formally striking. Mm. So that's where the tactics like the sick out, where you co coordinate sick days and call in sick, um, it, it's basically a form of unofficial strike. Uh, and a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about has, to one degree or another, been unofficial action, has had either no sanction from mm. union leadership or a kind of uneasy relationship. Yeah, with, I mean, uh, with what, what, one of the things that Lois goes into in, in some detail in, um, in the interview is, is precise, precisely that question and the fact that, you know, the vast majority, vast majority of, of workers involved in these actions are not members of unions. Mm. So that's an mm. interesting dynamic. The uh, first statewide strike occurred in West Virginia. It began as a wildcat strike. It was uh, initially organised through a, through a Facebook page, as, as Lois will mention in the, in, in the interview, um, and eventually successfully closed uh, schools in all of the state's 55 counties. And it won, and this is, I think, is one of the most impressive uh, elements of it, 
it won a 5% pay rise, not just for teachers, but for all state employees. And they actually, at some point, at one point during the dispute, they actually rejected an offer that had been negotiated between the unions mm. and, and, and the state government uh, that would have given the teachers 5% and only 3% for other state employees. So they actually stayed out and said, well, we're going to stay out until everyone gets 5%. So it's a real good example of workers fighting, not just on their own behalf, but on, the, on behalf of the whole class sort of thing. Uh, and it's particularly interesting when you think that West Virginia has recently become a sort of byword for Trumpism. Mm. It's been the sort of um, the kind of uh, key example of a state where you know a, an impoverished state full of working class people mm. that's kind of swung Ex-miners, to the right, you yeah. know, and, and and all that, you know, uh, voted heavily for Trump in twenty sixteen, largely on on uh, ostensibly on his on his promise to bring back the coal industry mm. in West Virginia, which of course is not going to happen. Um, but for most of the 20th century, West Virginia was actually a, a Democrat voting state. Uh, they voted uh, uh, Reagan in, in the 80s when everyone voted Reagan um, and only really went Republican in the last 10, 10, 15 years or so. And it's also a state with one of the most impressive and violent labor histories in the, in the United States. You might have heard of episodes like uh, the Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921, where uh, members of the United Mine Workers of America were were bombed out of their uh, defensive positions by the U.S. Army and Air Force. You know, it was it's it's been it's been not not quite in living memory, but not exactly a million years ago has been has been like that that's been the sort of pitch of class struggle in this part of America. Well, if, I mean, there's the the Harlan County stuff much more much more recently than that. I mean, that, the 60s that, that, that is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that is yeah, that certainly yeah. is within living memory. Yeah. I mean, on all this, something else it's worth sort of picking out that Lois mentions also in the interview is that um, uh, despite the kind of dynamic that Ed's talking about of West Virginia becoming synonymous with um, this sort of right-wing nationalist populism, Trumpism, uh, in the Democratic primary elections, West Virginia went for Sanders. Yeah, it's one of of those states where, you know... um, a sort of Trump or Sanders yeah. state, you know. Um, so the the struggle to establish the miners' union in these sort of company towns with sort of private police forces, private armed detectives, all of that sort of violent history is there. Um, I would strongly recommend that you watch a film called Mate One about about those mm-hmm. struggles. Uh, it's a it's a it's a drama, but it's based very closely on uh, historical events. Um, Incidentally, apparently, uh, union miners in West Virginia and around that area at that time were derogatory. Uh, redneck was a derogatory phrase for them because they wore red bandanas to signify their union membership. Although, apparently, they also referred to scab workers as rednecks. So I think redneck is just a, a general insult. <laughs> as, as, I have no idea. That's, yeah, I always just assumed yeah. it was to do with farming. It, well, like the, that's, the, that, yeah, that, yeah. that's the, the kind of most commonly yeah, accepted yeah. etymology. I think that's I think. where it came from originally, but it's it's been employed differently in different places. Right, okay. yeah, that's yeah, really interesting. Yeah. Um, another of the states that's been hit by these walkouts, Oklahoma, around this time, just a bit, a little, a little bit before that time, uh, it had one of the most successful state organisations of the Socialist Party of America. You know, in terms of electoral success and membership, and uh, there's a good uh, Jacobin article about mm. that history. And that's that's the party of uh, Eugene V. Debs yeah, for for, yeah. for anyone who's not aware who we, we've talked about 
on the show yeah. before, particularly in our episode about Him, industrial himself a, rad- a radical trade unionist. So so there's this kind of there's a, a myth among sort of outsiders or you know particularly people outside America probably that that these places have just been like hopeless pits of reactions yeah, throughout all memorial. of history yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's all a load of rubbish there's there's this there's this radical history there as well um the situation that the american school staff are, are facing it'll be familiar to any public sector worker in this country you've had decades of pay restraint oklahoma teachers had no pay rise for 10 years um a fifth of the school districts in oklahoma have gone down to a four-day week because they can't afford to pay for a five-day school week and that's actually uh, good news for the teachers that have to work a second or third job <laughs> to live because it of course gives them time to do that um so the kind of austerity that we've faced in the in the public sector in this country is is uh, there in america if, any, if anything it's it's worse in in parts of the country um underfunding of course though and understaffing can also give workers industrial power because when you've reduced the service to a skeleton service, it only takes a few people to decide not to come into work and the, and the thing will close yeah, down. That, I mean, that, that's something, I mean, we certainly found in our um, last uh, sort of network-wide strike of station staff on, on London Underground, exactly that dynamic, that um, the, the staffing level had been cut back so much that it sort of had the effect of amplifying the impact of our action. Yeah, yeah. So despite all that and despite all those attacks, there's uh, teachers are among the most heavily unionised kind of workforce in America still. Um, it's all relative, obviously. Um, the de- very decentralised nature of the American education system has meant that historically... So like you, each kind of school district sort of elect, has its own elected school board that runs mm. the schools and hires teachers and stuff like that. It's not like a big national system. And... That, that's where you have arguments about what's on the curriculum in a particular county and stuff like that. Um, but what it's meant historically is that teachers have had to have a, quite a high level of kind of political consciousness because you have to, um, you had to, you couldn't rely on the the central union to kind of negotiate a big national agreement for everyone. You had to do those negotiations yourself. They won kind of statewide negotiating up from the county level. Uh, but they also you, you had to do all the the grievance work yourself. You had to do all of that, and you also had to do kind of political lobbying in terms of school board level and stuff like that. So there's a kind of uh, culture there of, of a bit of political consciousness in the teachers unions. Um, however, they have kind of professionalised in the last thirty odd years, expanded their full time apparatus, and as many unions have in this country, concentrated on. A defense of the status mm. quo basically in a, in a kind of defensive manner um which you could argue has led to a focus on big cities where union power is stronger and more centralized and it's easier to get members together and stuff and uh to, to the detriment of these sort of areas we're talking about which are more rural and more kind of, and, and where the union movement is weaker um the last interesting thing i'll mention before we hear the interview is that there was a similar teacher's strike in, in 1990 in some of these areas. Uh, West Virginia and Oklahoma were, were, were in, involved in it. Um, but that strike was a teacher's strike. It was limited to teaching staff. The strike this year, particularly in West Virginia, um, school bus drivers and s- school cooks in mm. the canteen 
joined in. They have their own, they have their own union. They were there with the teachers union. Uh, there's a really interesting article by uh, Kate Doyle Griffiths um, where she says, according to strikers, uh, ten teachers absent can shut a school for safety reasons, but one cook or bus driver walking off the job closes the whole school. Mm. Because in, particularly in the rural areas, I guess if you can't get to school mm. on the bus, you're not going to get to school, yeah. right? So. We talked about that before in terms of industrial unionism and where the, the the workplace power isn't necessarily where you might assume it would be. And in this case, the the role of the support staff in making those mm. strikes dead solid has been has been really really important. And it is kind of industrial unionism in action. So with all that in mind, let's hear what uh, Lois Weiner had to say to Daniel. I think right now it's clear that activity among teachers and in teachers' unions is very important to the resurgence of the labor movement, Mm -hmm. to organize labor. But I think that that's partly because the other things that are happening have not been as dramatic. But obviously, there is something very important going on in the U.S. labor movement with the organization of low-wage workers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the unions are too weak to win gains through direct action, I think, to protect low-wage workers. Mm -hmm. They're just too weak. And low-wage workers in service industries are too scattered. Mm-hmm. And one of but one so one of the reasons that the the union activity among teachers has been so dramatic is that it's a sector in which there is the state is is not the employer but the state meaning the federal sure. states. Yeah. They affect teachers wages and working conditions and benefits to a very great extent. I think it remains to be seen what will happen in wake of the Janus decision. Mm -hmm. Obviously, public employee unions are extremely important. The Supreme Court ruled, as everybody thought it was going to, which is that public employee unions are not now, uh, do not have the right to collect the equivalent from Mm non-members of monies that the union expends for bargaining on their behalf or representing them to the employer. That's called agency fee. Various public employee unions are dependent on agency fee for varying amounts of their uh, financial base. And the unions have done, I think, they adopted a quite an apolitical strategy Mm -hmm. for dealing with it, which was to have people sign cards saying they would continue to be members. Mm. Without connecting that to a discussion of about what the union should be and how they should Mm -hmm. be protecting members or not. Mm. So they didn't use the card as an organizing strategy to get members involved. Mm. They used it as a strategy to uh, 
really try to continue with the status quo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's possible. So the other thing is that, of course, who knows what will happen with Trump's uh, machinations with tariffs. Yeah. Yeah. And how that's going to affect uh, white workers who supported him. I think that there's there's no way to separate what's going to happen to the labor movement to what's going to happen in the society more generally. Like, for instance, with the deportations. Sure. Mm-hmm. But um, the deportations are very very important for certain unions, and some of the unions have been excellent. Yeah. Uh, about uh, fighting the deportations and protecting mm-hmm. members. Yeah. But the labor movement as a whole has been really unwilling has not really it's been unwilling as usual to engage in any kind of direct action and it is obvious that the AFL CIO is very concerned about the support of white workers for Trump this past spring I, I visited uh, I spoke to a group of um, a social justice committee of a collection of locals in South San Diego when I was uh, there I met these these women all elementary school teachers because it was um, this this collection of locals had two school districts that were only elementary schools, they hadn't consolidated with the high schools. So these are really unions of women, and the officers are all women, as well. That's very unusual in a union mm. to find that all of the officers mm. are women, right, mm-hmm. and the leadership. And they have been involved, they, they work in a working class community that is overwhelmingly um, immigrant, Latino, Latinx, and um, they have been involved in this prolonged contract campaign. And a couple of the teachers had themselves been involved in anti-deportation mm-hmm. actions, direct actions to protect students. There was fear among the teachers, and they were looking for support in the community. But the community parents were themselves afraid because of deportations. Mm -hmm. And as we thought about it, they said, well, you know, some of the parents are themselves members of unions. Mm -hmm. And they called on those, those parents to help them. They got resolutions of support, paper resolutions of support, nonetheless. And they got a motion of support from the San Diego Labor Council. So I think that there's a way in which these grassroots struggles are recreating networks. Mm. Even though union density is very low, it's reconnecting workers in unions and creating new networks uh, that are very important for solidarity. Mm-hmm. So, is is it a labor movement network or community network or both? And both. Yeah. And I think you know when I uh, when my book first came out, someone said to me, "What's this distinction between a social justice union and a social movement union?" Mm-hmm. I don't understand what the distinction is. And for me, the distinction has always been exactly what you just said, mm-hmm. that. Uh, a union has to be the um, connective tissue of a social movement. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Um, and I think that I think that in all the teacher in all the walkouts, 
we began to see that happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So to just go back to the walkouts for yeah. a second, um, I'm conscious that um, activists in the British Labour movement might not have uh, a particularly sort of comprehensive understanding of that movement, what it re- represented, where it came from. So could you just give us sort of a kind of sketch of what what's happened in terms of teacher walkouts and well the first thing to understand is that the states are all different in the legal um and the in the legality of unionizing and striking and it's just it's different for police it's different for teachers it's different for firefighters other public employees Uh, these are called the red states because they have republican legislatures and they voted for trump Mm-hmm. And they're in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. There are states that have all had uh, severe cuts to funding uh, to schools. Mm-hmm. And there are all states that have teacher salaries paid primarily by the state with local districts having the right to supplement it. Uh-huh. Now, that's a very important difference from, let's say, Texas mm. or New York or New Jersey, where schools are funded by the property tax. Local property taxes. Schools are funded right. by local property taxes. And I'm just going to add here that local property taxes, that nexus between... that um, There's a nexus between residential segregation and school segregation because... <clears throat> Uh, people of color are kept out of white school districts. Right. They can't buy property there, and therefore the schools are uh, segregated. But at the same time, lower middle class and working class white school districts have a very difficult time funding their schools because the tax base is not high enough, Uh and teacher salaries are the main... um, cost for school districts. So if you look at school taxes, property taxes and teacher salaries, you just see a one-to-one correlation. Yeah. Right? Okay. Okay. But the red states, the so-called red states where the walkouts occurred, that's not true. The state legislature funded the schools directly and then wealthier districts uh, taxed themselves on top of it. Could you just say which states we're talking about? So we're talking about West Virginia, uh-huh. which began it all, Oklahoma, Kentucky, um, Arizona, and there was a one-day walkout of the entire, not of the entire state, but of 30,000 people organized in North Carolina. Right? North Carolina is different from those other states in that until recently it had a Democratic legislature and a liberal Republican Party, mm. a, a, a corporate liberal Republican Party. So North Carolina is different politically. But what happened in all of these states is that teachers who are activists, some of them union members, but most not, formed Facebook pages. And I have a, uh, an article in, in these times that describes uh, my relationship with them. They formed either closed or secret Facebook pages. And they were they started off with 
often local walkouts that were then coordinated and grown to be statewide walkouts. So district by district initially, or school by school? By county by county. Right. But you, you can't really say the, that it was the growth. I mean, these movements mushroomed. Yeah. They just mushroomed. And I was on the Facebook pages. And it was, you saw a process of politicization. Okay. That was amazing. Literally, day by day, you saw people in their comments becoming more political. And they would start off by saying, well, I'm afraid, I'm willing to walk out, but... Not if, but only if other people are going to walk out. And so they devised this strategy, because they're public employees, of using personal days or sick days. Yeah. Yeah. Phoning in, mm-hmm. uh, saying that they were going to be out, and then the school had to be closed. So since the school district had to be closed, they didn't have to use their sick day or their personal day because the district was closed. Mm-hmm. You following me? Sure. Yeah. So that... That was able to sustain the movement for longer because even if you only had three personal days, if the district was closed for three days, if the county was closed, if too many schools in the in the if too many schools in the district have to be closed, then a district has to close, and if too many districts close, then a county has to close. So you saw on the Facebook page, you saw people tallies. People saying so and such county, so and such county, and people created the maps to show as each county, mm-hmm. you know, each county became red if it was closed. Can we go back a bit before yeah. the Facebook movement got going? Were there local groups of teachers, either on social media or in real life? Getting together and talking about... But not about pay things. That's what I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Not about pay things. The explosion over pay really, I think, occurred as part of the social turmoil uh, post-Trump. Right. Okay. And also the Parkland Parkland shooting and the student walkout. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, A lot of teachers were inspired by that because the students walked out. Yeah. Uh, but there has been a lot of grassroots organizing in the schools about testing. Yeah. A lot about testing. And it's been going on for eight years. There's something called the opt-out movement. And, um, of course, the both the AFT and the NEA refuse to fight tying teachers' evaluations to student test scores. Mm. Uh, and so teachers really felt deserted mm-hmm. and betrayed. Mm-hmm. And by, by, the unions. by the union. And isolated. And a group formed several years ago called the Badass Teachers Association. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, quite, there was quite a furor about the fact that they called themselves badass. You know, that's so naughty and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But they were furious. They said that we refuse to be blamed for everything that's going on because mm. the um, you know the narrative is that teacher quality is the most important factor yeah. in yeah. student success. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I think that that 
the I think that that narrative, the teacher quality is so important, fed the frustration and rage at the poor working conditions, the deprofessionalization, uh, and the poor material conditions mm. for teaching. And people were actually seeing their paychecks diminish in size. Yeah. The teacher walkouts were a mass radicalization. And I think that uh, one fact that has not been well publicized that is very important and I think should make us hopeful is that I think probably a majority of the teachers who walked out voted for Trump. Right. Oh, really? Oh, yes. And many of them voted for the governors who ridiculed them. But what's interesting Mm -hmm. is that uh, Sanders won the primaries. So, in West Virginia, Sanders overwhelmingly won the primary. But the idea that it is pushed by the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party and by liberals that Trump voters are deplorables is completely contradicted by the teacher walkout. Um, In terms of the walkouts um, uh, and how they functioned um, on the day, was there picketing... Uh, they built uh, them. people form a kind of traditional picket lines, or was it more people would go to a, 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 a rally? No, they would or a go march. to rallies. They they massed, uh, and I want to say each state had a different rhythm, so it's very important to distinguish. They there were there were important similarities, but there were very very important differences, um, and those differences had to do with the the politics of the state, the demographics of the state. West Virginia, as a state, is 96.4% white. Mm -hmm. And it's a state that has a fairly recent history of uh, union militancy, right? Uh, And the other thing is that the West Virginia, although it wasn't started, the first walkouts didn't occur and demonstrations didn't occur uh, because socialists organized Mm -hmm. it. Socialists were the de facto organizers of the walkouts they they were the connective they were the uh, they were one they were connected to one another uh, oftentimes local union representatives assisted them but it's very important to understand that the unions probably had memberships of under two digits nobody belonged to the union nobody why would you uh, so they weren't even good professional organizations. A good professional organization does a better job of educating the public about things like testing mm-hmm. than the unions did. So the unions, as organizations, were, uh, in terms of creating the movement, they were um, irrelevant. But the movements, West Virginia was built over a period of months. Uh, I received a phone call from one of the organizers in October and we talked about strategy and then before I know it in February I receive another phone call from him saying help what do we do now you know and just sort of talking through what the options were and it was at that point that I went onto the uh, Facebook page Um, whereas Oklahoma was really sparked by people who were excited by West Virginia and said we can do this but as a result, it didn't have that same incubation period. 
and it was weaker mm. organizationally. Mm-hmm. They just didn't have an organizational structure. Mm. Also as a consequence of racial issues, because of a racial divide, because the heart of the walkout was Tulsa and Oklahoma, for instance, was Tulsa and Oklahoma City. And, you know, Tulsa had uh, very violent, bloody racial pogroms and is a completely segregated city, Mm. and its school system is completely segregated. Uh, And the teachers hadn't, they hadn't done their homework in getting before they walked out and getting the support of the African-American community. Right. Right? They just didn't have it. Um, And the same thing is true in Kentucky. Kentucky was complicated. Kentucky also didn't have that incubation period. The really interesting thing about Kentucky, though, is that the real political leadership of Kentucky came from a left liberal group, Save Our Schools Kentucky, Mm -hmm. that had many teachers as members. Mm -hmm. And the union was irrelevant. The other thing that occurred in Kentucky is that the Facebook page was um, less open. So there were internal divisions in Kentucky. And also in Kentucky, the discussion of race and racism was ruled, was called divisive by uh, one of the people who has, who was advanced as a spokesperson for the movement. Arizona, though, reverted to the West Virginia model and had a a fairly long incubation period where they had, now here's the answer to your question, they did something like walk-ins. Right. Parents and teachers would gather together outside of school wearing a red T-shirt, red for Ed, which is was incidentally from the Chicago Teachers yeah. Union, yeah. and they would walk into the school together. Mm. They had red for Ed bumper stickers. Mm. They painted their car red. They did all of these things to build public awareness of their str- of their struggle and to help people who were very frightened. Mm. People were very frightened mm. that they would lose their jobs if they identified with the movement. Mm. And there was uh, there were some. Um, I'll just describe them as macho AFT locals in Arizona who kept prematurely calling for a state walkout and pulling their own members out, right? And the leadership of the Arizona walkout, though, was in contact with people from West Virginia. And they learned from them, and Chicago, yeah. Uh, and they and the Arizona Education Association, the union, also learned from those other states. And therefore, they worked with the Facebook page. They didn't subvert it. Mm. Okay. So okay. just to just to dwell on this topic for a minute, yeah. because that that's interesting because that's You've talked mainly so far about the unions either being an irrelevance yes, to what's gone on nice. or, or almost a break on it. Not um, almost a break, and even worse, they betrayed it. Right, yeah. so can you elaborate a little bit on, yeah. so while all this has been going well, on, what, look, what's been the role of the sort of... The role of the union apparatus. Of, yeah, yeah. The union apparatus. 
It flatters them to call them a bureaucracy. <laughs> they're an apparatus. They're staffers, right, with a few elected people. Um, they're politically unsophisticated. They're not organizers. Um, they're token, right? They mainly give the National Union a presence in the state, and that's all. Right. But just for the benefit of people who might not know the acronyms, so the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, right. the NEA, the National Education Association. Right. And has there been any dynamic um, kind of coming out of the walkout movement that's sort of uh, taken up the question of the need to transform these unions, or is the is is the is the dynamic more let's bypass them, or is that a sort of well, is that is that a debate within it, the kind it, of walkout I movement? I wanted to also ask his. Um, yeah. Are there locals um, well, in each of these states? or There's know, a state organization, and then yeah. there may be a local, a school district that has an organization, but there are most, many school districts that don't have even have okay. the uh, pretense of an organization, which is the reason they have no members. Right, so... Most of the participants in the walkouts are non-union, presumably. Overwhelmingly. Right? Overwhelmingly. So, not a, oh, oh, talking like 85%. Right. So has there been a debate about the question of sort of workplace organisation, effectively? Are people saying that we need to consolidate this walkout by forming our own, our own union local in our school oh, or in our district? Asking, we where need is that? You know, Where's so, that debate? Yeah. Um, it's... Look, it's a, it's a different debate in different places. To be frank, Oklahoma and Kentucky were crushed because they were betrayed by the state union. The state apparatus cut a deal with the state legislature. It was not what people wanted. Members didn't vote on it. Not even their own members voted on it, let alone the people who were involved in the walkout, mm. right? They just said, it's over. Calling off the, and they used all of their political clout to call off the walkout. Mm. And the people who had organized the walkout were too tired and confused and too demoralized to figure out what they should do, and they really didn't have an organization, mm. right? They hadn't developed the organization that they had in Kentucky. Mm. So in Kentucky, when the state leadership, and I will tell you, in every in every single state, when I spoke to people who were activists, I said, I'm warning you, the state union is going to betray you. Mm. It's going to sell you out. It's going to cut a deal behind your back. The only question is, what is the deal going to be, and how are they doing it? I said that to everybody, right? Only West Virginia and Arizona understood that of the of the groups that had of the of the four states that had extended walkouts. They were the only ones that understood that. And I think part of the reason that they understood that is that those weeks, those weeks and weeks of organizing had really shown them the importance of workplace organization, yes. yeah. right? And they saw that the state was not supporting them in that, and it seasoned them, right? But in Oklahoma and Kentucky, they didn't have that that extended experience of organizing. It really was like it just emerged as a response, really, to West Virginia yeah. 
and was shut down before it could, uh, before they could get that experience. So, I don't. I think in all. I think in West Virginia, a lot of people have joined the union. Right. Right. And the leadership there understands that they have to have uh, a caucus. They have to transform the union. Right. They need a different kind of union. So they understand that. I think that they, Arizona, the existing leadership collaborated with them. So they understand that they need to go into the union, right? People have to become members, and they have to make it a different kind of union. In other words, bring the experience that they have had into the union. The one state I didn't talk about that people haven't looked at, though, which is very important, is North Carolina. Why is North Carolina important? North Carolina has a caucus that was formed uh, several years ago by um, radicals and socialists. And this is a caucus within the within the union. Yes, but it's a caucus that's not li- limited to the union. It's more of a social movement. They hooked up with. Um, uh, Moral Mondays, the civil rights movement, you know, and they met teachers who are activists. It's multiracial. Uh, Their program is race conscious, unlike the other states. Their program is race conscious, really takes on racism, but in a way that combines it with a class class analysis. Um, They really understand their role as helping to rebuild the labor movement in the South. And so after the walkout started in West Virginia and Oklahoma, this group of people who are now the leadership of key locals in the state, the largest cities, the cities are always the base, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they said, we should be doing something. Mm-hmm. In other words, they didn't wait for other, they didn't wait for some spontaneous mm-hmm. uh, self-organization to occur. They took leadership. Yeah. Mm. And they organized it, and they decided that what they could achieve was they could get people, they could turn the normal, the usual day of sort of begging the legislature, 200 people go beg the legislature uh, to pass bills, they could turn that into a mass demonstration and use the demonstration to grow the caucus. And that's what they did. Okay. The other thing I want to make artic—I just want to articulate—is that this was a fantastic example of the self-organization of the working class. Mm-hmm. It just—it seemed to explode out of nowhere. Of course, it never explodes out of nowhere. Yeah, of you know, yeah, there's always so. organizing that's yeah. gone on. You know, on a molecular level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but. It was extraordinary, just yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. Okay. And and how would you? The future. Just, yeah. What's going to happen? Future. Yeah. Okay. What's going to happen? Well, I think uh, Arizona and West Virginia, we're going to see different unions. In the sense of the existing unions being transformed. Yes. Yes. Yeah? At the local level, or in the national uh, level. Well, we... definitely at the state. Okay. Definitely at the state level, and I think that there are going to be more people. So this is this is a remember this is not a matter of an existing union apparatus on the local level that has to be challenged. Yeah. This is a matter of 
creating creating unions yeah. creating unions yeah. that's what this is about yeah. creating unions and uh, that's going to be very uneven it's going to depend on the county it's mm. going to depend on the individuals who are there yeah. obviously there's a there's a reciprocal inf- effect between having a dynamic state organization that encourages local and one local encouraging another right mm-hmm. mm. So I'm very hopeful about that, especially in Arizona and um, West Virginia. I think I'm very hopeful about North Carolina. I think North Carolina now has a base in what's called the Triangle, the three largest cities in the state. And they also have significant support in the rural areas, especially uh, both in black and white rural communities in North Carolina. Uh, I'm very optimistic about that. Um, Kentucky and Oklahoma, I think it remains to be seen. But what I think we've seen, like the big picture here, is that the Chicago Teachers Union set the bar, mm-hmm. right? We've had vic- we've had victory of victories of reform caucuses and individuals in leadership. Most of the major locals in cities in the United States, most of them now, if they haven't been victorious, the caucus has succeeded in changing the narrative, right? They're contenders. They're really contenders. What that's going to mean in terms of the national organization in the immediate future, I don't know. But I am, I have to say this, I'm going to make a prediction that the existing union leadership is not going to last a decade. I think that the, uh, the forces of reform in, the, in, the, in both unions are just too, they're too strong and as are, well. And are, are these reform caucuses um, sort of explicitly modeled on the um, caucus of rank and file educators model and their role in the... Um, Chicago teacher strikes is 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 that is is that a model that's uh, kind no, of no they're spread? not no they're not the only one that I think is there's only one that I think is because you know there are differences in reform caucuses you can have a reform caucus that uh, is really just is really a slate to elect a new leadership mm-hmm. yeah right you can have yeah, that's a model we're very familiar with in the British Labour movement exactly and I would I think a great many of the uh, are in the United States what was very significant about CORE is that I think most significant is that it built its base before it it became a contender for union leadership Mm-hmm. So that when they became a contender for union leadership, they totally changed everything. Mm-hmm. It wasn't piecemeal. And I have to say, when you have to change things piecemeal and you don't have the base, you cannot be as radical. You just can't make the kind of changes that CORE made. That's why I think North Carolina Organized 2020 is really CORE's inheritor. Right. That's why it's it's course. So if a caucus and we see another in Philadelphia, Baltimore has just formed a caucus that is very strong. So we're seeing the old leadership 
replaced by a new leadership, the extent to which that new leadership will really be able to break from past practice depends on whether they have a mobilized base and that differs from locale to locale. Um, maybe just to start to wrap up and take the discussion sort of back to the place we started, um, what potential do you see for this sort of burgeoning self-organization of education workers and this kind of potential rank-and-file movement in um, the education industry and in education unions linking up with wider sort of resistance movements, uh, if we can call them that, to the, to the, to the Trump regimes. So we talked earlier about anti-deportations activism. Um, we've, you've talked kind of consistently about um, uh, okay. activism around race and gender. What, what potential do you see for, for those movements to kind of link up with um, the, these teacher struggles, but also with, with, with uh, ra radical insurgent struggles within the labor movement more generally? Well, first I want to say that I don't think it's automatic. The linking up is not automatic. Of course. Uh, and I think that's one of the roles, a very important role for socialists, is to raise these questions and to point out to people who their friends are. Because those connections, in my experience with the movement, they didn't make those connections automatically. Somebody had to ask them the question and say, for instance, um, in West Virginia, the fight was about funding uh, health insurance, right, for public employees. And discussions I had with them, I said, well, are you connected with people who are involved in single payer? And it turns out there it was a very strong community group. So single payer is really... Sort of a movement for socialized health care of yeah, some sort. Yeah, for socialized health care of some sort. So it sometimes takes people from the outside or people who are on the inside who are socialists who see that these are connections that need to be made. But what's extraordinary is, is, is it as soon as you say it, as soon as you raise this as an idea, the, the light bulb goes off and people yeah. say, oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yes, I know. We should, be we should be talking to the bilingual teachers. Of course, you know, we yeah. have these bilingual yeah. teachers. Yeah. They should be helping us yeah. with blah, blah, blah. And the community is organizing against deportations. And we should be showing up for them. So what, what, I'm, what I'm hopeful about is that this really, because teachers are in every community, in every state, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they can really be a um, a grounding yeah. for creating networks and alliances that haven't existed before mm -hmm. between the social movement and yeah. and workers. Uh, that was an interview with uh, Lois Weiner, the uh, socialist and trade union activist um, from America. Um, that's an abridged version of the interview. There's a fuller transcript available online that we'll link to in the um, episode description. And we're just going to have a kind of few minutes of discussion amongst ourselves now about what we thought were the salient points. Um, so to kick us off, I'm going to hand over to Ellie, who's going to talk about um, some of the aspects to do with the role of the trade union bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, I just... So I found it really interesting when, uh, when Lois was speaking in regards to... Um, you know, things to do with the union bureaucracy. And I know that one of the things that came up when we were doing the research for this uh, for this episode was, it really surprised me anyway, was that in the kind of really 
red states uh, and the states where they have the lowest kind of union density. And I think also some of the most vicious kind of anti-union laws. Mm. Um, Those teachers actually found it easier to do direct action. Uh, And the reason for that was, was because they just got up and did it. They just walked out. Whereas in states where they, and I realised that the relationship of the teachers to their unions is different in every state. Mm. But in a lot of states that you would expect it to be easier because they have a much higher union density, they have much better union infrastructure, they have better laws around organising. Those were actually some of the states they found it hardest in because they had to spend a lot of their time fighting quite a conservative union bureaucracy. I think that's a really interesting aspect to this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm sure I speak for all of us when I say we wouldn't want listeners to kind of run away with like a sort of accelerationist idea that, uh, you know, it'd be be- it, it, it's better when the, you know, union structures are much weaker and anti-union laws are much harsher because then there's, you know, you can, you've got nothing to lose and you can just walk off the job. That's definitely not what we're saying. But I think the points that Ellie's talking about and, and the aspects in the, the picture that um, she and Lois are referring to do emphasise the need for... Um, well, certainly for an awareness of the kind of conservatising role of, of, of the union bureaucracy and, and the need to sort of organise against that. And for me, some of the best and most um, hopeful and optimistic stuff coming out of all of this is the formation of like rank and file caucuses mm-hmm. and committees within states, within unions that are seeking to, um, bo- that are seeking both to transform their union organisations, but also to be in a position where they can catalyse struggles and action semi-independently of the union bureaucracy where necessary. I think it's even to bring it down to an individual level, like, um, which, uh, you know, is it, how, how Marxist is it to, to talk on this basis? But I, th- I think there's a... Basically, when you come into the trade union movement, you will learn from various sources in various ways how to do trade unionism. Mm. And if you come into a, Ed, a, Ed a was doing air quotes around <laughs> how to do trade unionism there. I forget that sometimes forget that we're not on telly, but <laughs> one day, one day we will be. Um, you know, so if you if you if you come into if you come into the movement in a place where it is uh, maybe quite strong, uh, it might also be quite kind of business as usual, yeah. and you might go to a meeting and you might ask an awkward question, and someone might say, you know who's this new person or whatever. They don't do things you know, like that round here. Well, son. Ex- exactly. So, so always Northern, aren't they? That's, that's the worst. Yeah. Well, you know, the, <laughs> even in the United States of America, they're the, always from Yorkshire. The, the, the best and worst. Of the trade union movement. But you know, do, 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 does it make sense what I'm saying? The, the, the kind yeah, of, no, for so, sure. Yeah. So where there's a, where the union's weaker, there's obviously all sorts of, of detriments to that. But, you're less likely to run up against this kind of business as usual, mm. this is how we do things sort, sort of attitude, which it seems to be what's happened a little bit in, in some of the parts of America with the teachers, you know. So it's like in the uh, in our in Grunick episodes that we did, um, there's a quote from, from a union bureaucrat in that that says, oh, these guys need to learn the British way of doing Yeah, Yeah, losing. Not fighting. You know, you can imagine someone saying, these guys need to learn the blue state way of yeah. doing teachers, trade unionism or, or whatever, you know, where, where is that? And, and the other thing is that, that, as happens time and time again in, in labour history, is that the the most inspiring things, the most inspiring episodes and struggles 
can come from the places that no one really expects them to come from. Yeah, for which, sure. You know, and, and, and I think we, we, we see in all of this stuff, this is something that we've come back to kind of time and time again um, in, in a lot of the strikes and struggles that we've talked about, the absolutely irreplaceable role of a sort of... Um, a kind of an, an element within a workplace or an industry within a union who are prepared to just fucking like have a go, yeah. like who are prepared to like light a fire, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that that might take the form, and, and I think all three of us would probably say like, ideally, it would take the form of like a politically organised element, you know, in a revolutionary socialist organisation. But even when it doesn't take that form, and it's just a group of a group of of, of workers who are just like no fuck it we're like we're, we're gonna have a go at this and have that sort of almost kind of volunteeristic like pioneering ambition yeah. to to start something off even if it's just a facebook group to to talk about coordinating sick yeah. days um that's that's essential like you need to have that element that's prepared to um light the fire yeah and it's interesting how the the i mean much has been made unrightly of the of the kind of facebook groups that that we used to to pull people together but my understanding of it is that that very rapidly, at least in the case of West Virginia, that very, very rapidly developed into good old-fashioned face-to-face workplace meetings yeah. and, mm-hmm. the, and the, the actual strike votes themselves were, were, took place on, at, at mass meetings in, in workplaces. So there's a there's a kind of, another element of it is the kind of, oh, you know, the, the role of social media and, and all that that people love to talk about. In this case, it, it was employed very effectively to kind of get people together to then do the kind of re- real world yeah, stuff that you absolutely. actually need to do in order to organise a, a walkout, you know. Um, another element that I just wanted to sort of flag up very quickly, um, uh, both because I think it's important on its own terms and because it's a way for me to crowbar in a reference back to our um, Minneapolis Teams to Strike episode. Oh my um, God. <laughs> when will it end? <laughs> Listeners rescue us a, from this. Why don't we have a swear jar yet? Dan, Dan needs to pay for our new equipment every time you mention. Um, well, the thing I was about to say before I was very rudely interrupted by that um, extremely unnecessary uh, diversion was I think, I think we talked a little bit in that episode about um, the idea of um, the social strike, which is a kind of concept which has got a little bit of currency in sort of, um, I guess, kind of kind of semi-autonomist kind of circles on uh, in, in the Labour movement and on the left. And I think there's a lot of kind of mysticism and mystification about what that strike is. And I think I said in, in reference to the Minneapolis Teamster strike, um, and if I didn't say it in the episode, I've, I've certainly said this in, in print, that if that concept has any explanatory value or, or, or kind of strategic value, it's... It's, it's to describe the type of strike that the Minneapolis Teamster strike was and perhaps on a smaller scale but in a sort of embryonic form these teacher walkouts were in that it's a strike where the hub is still very much um, workers' action organised in workplaces and, you know, kind of fucking up capitalist economic production but that kind of spokes out to mobilise wider sections of... The, the working class, working class communities, takes up wider social questions. Lois talks in the interview about the intersections between um, teacher trade unionism and um, migrants' rights struggles, um, struggles against deportation, etc. So you can see these strikes start to take on that kind of social character. And, you know, that's the beginnings of a kind of perspective for class power, really. I mean, to me, from what I've read of, like, 
the idea of the social strike, what what it actually what people are actually talking about is a a good strike, <laughs> like like a a properly organised, well run strike. Yes. I, ca- I can't I can't think of a a significant like major strike in history that hasn't had those elements. Sure. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, it's just that's just part of how you win it. No, an indeed, industrial, indeed. Industrial. I mean, I, I think a lot of it comes out with a sort of, um, a, a lot of a lot of it comes out of like an obsession with novelty and pretending that everything's this incredibly new, innovative idea right, when yeah, actually you're just yeah. talking about like yeah. doing the basics properly. Um, maybe just to wrap up this uh, sort of uh, postamble, um, going to go back to Ed, who's going to uh, sort of help us finish on a high note by talking about some of the material gains that He's- came out of these. Uh, disputes. Is, is, have you just made up the word post? No, I haven't actually. I've <laughs> I've, pl- I've directly plagiarised it from another podcast. Um, yeah. So so I mean, it is important to end on. Uh, well, it's interesting because a lot a lot of the disputes we talk about obviously historical. So you can kind of look back and say they achieved this and this happened. This is kind of an. I mean, no one's out on strike at the moment. But it's obviously it's a live issue, and yeah. it's all it's all kind of up in the air to the, the extent to which this will knock on into other sections of work, the workforce in in America and in these states, and what the potential political ramifications will be. So we can't really speculate on that. But in terms of the kind of lightning quick sort of gains that were made by just having a walkout, um, the West Virginia teachers got their five percent pay rise, and as I mentioned, not just for themselves but for all, all state employees, which is a really, really, really good and significant um, uh, development. Uh, Oklahoma got a six thousand dollar pay rise for the teachers, a, a twelve hundred and fifty dollar pay rise for support staff. Um, Arizona got a twenty percent pay rise. Um, Colorado and Oklahoma also secured increased funding for the education system which again goes back to this kind of social strike idea of mm. like, you know you're you're fighting for the class as a whole uh you're not just it takes on a dimension more than just fighting for your pay packet mm. even though that might be how it starts so very 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 good and significant material gains and it, it remains to be seen uh whether this will will sort of knock on into the rest of the american labor movement and whether anyone in this country will uh, will take any lessons from it as well Thanks very much for that, Ed. Um, so just as our kind of penultimate feature um, for this episode, before we um, conclude with some uh, words of thanks and some announcements, I'm going to hand back over to Ellie. We're, we're staying in the USA. Um, so as Ellie mentioned at the top, of the, sh- uh, the top of the show, she's kind of our sort of resident expert on issues of um, kind of crime and policing policy and, and kind of socialist and working class responses to that. And she's going to talk to us about a um, recent strike of uh, prison workers that's been taking place in America. Ellie, over to you. I mean, I'm absolutely not an expert on any topic whatsoever, <laughs> but having said that, I do It's all right, the public to... are fed up of experts. <laughs> <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, so I do want to shout out a prison strike that's actually happening in the US at the moment. So it's, uh, it started on Tuesday the 21st and it's going to be running until the 19th of September, which is obviously not an insignificant amount of time for a strike to be happening over. So that's really great. Um, it involves various prisons right across the US um, and it's the first strike of its kind like this in two years. So um, that in itself is, is something that's quite important. And I think the reason why I think we should be highlighting this and, uh, and talking about it is because prisoners are some of the most oppressed workers in the world, especially prisoners in the US, where they still have this uh, 13th Amendment rule. Mm. That means if you break um, 
laws in the US, you can basically still be put into indentured servitude, which is mind-boggling when you consider that this is a developed first world nation. It's a democracy. You can still actually have people in it. It's a big it's a big money industry, isn't it, prison labor? It's a big yeah. it's part of the economy. Huge. It's yeah. a big part of the economy and it's a um it's just it's a huge way that goods and services are run in the US um and it profits people in massively. Well it profits um corporations massively. So um the strikes are over what we've just been talking about and what the prisoners themselves describe as modern day slavery and they are not being uh hyperbolic when they say these things they really are living and working in slave conditions so they've written a list of up to 10 demands um which includes the immediate improvements to conditions of the prisons um and prison policies that recognize the humanity of imprisoned men and women an immediate end to prison slavery All persons imprisoned in any place of detention under the United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labour. Prison Legislation Reform Act must be um, rescinded, allowing imprisoned humans a proper channel to address grievances and violations of their human rights. The truth, the truth in Sentencing Act and the Sentencing Reform Act must also be rescinded, so that imprisoned humans have the possibility of re of rehabilitation and parole. No human should be sentenced to death, or be um, asked to serve a sentence that doesn't have any possibility of a parole. An immediate end to the racial overcharging, over sentencing, and parole denial of black and brown humans. Black humans shall no longer be denied parole because their vict- because the victims of their crimes were white, which is a particular problem in the southern states. An immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws targeting black and brown humans. No imprisoned human shall be denied access to rehabilitation programs at their place of detention because they are labelled as a violent offender. States must be funded specifically to offer more rehabilitation services. Pell grants must be reinstated in all US in all US states and territories and the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences and so-called ex-offenders must all be counted. Representation is demanded, all voices count. So these are hugely wide set of demands, but they're a really important set of demands and like they range from the very bread and butter stuff, like we should be paid a wage for our labour, all the way through to political representation um, and much wider um, things to do with the deeply racialized nature of law enforcement in the US. So I think these, these are really important strikes and we just want to offer our fullest solidarity to these people and um, we really hope that this that this continues, this momentum continues and something's built from it. Thanks for that, Ali. And we'll put some links in the episode description to um, places where you can go online to check out the demands that um, Ellie was talking about and, and links to some organisations um, of prison workers and, and who are doing solidarity um, around this as well. Very finally then for um, this episode, we're going to hand back to Ed, who's got some exciting news about where we're going to be recording the next episode of Labour Days. Yeah, so um, listeners um, listeners might have heard of the World Transformed Festival, which for the last couple of years has run as a kind of fringe to uh, Labour Party conference. 
uh, which this year is is back in Liverpool. Um, I'll be chairing a session um, on the history of uh, political education in working class movements. Uh, that'll be on uh, Sunday, the twenty third of September, uh, at eleven till one, as part of the uh, the World Transformed uh, program. Uh, you can check out all the kind of sessions and stuff on on, on their website. Uh, but we will, as we've done a couple of times, we will be recording that session and we're planning a, 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 an episode more generally about political education in trade unions. So we'll, we'll probably use some of that material for, for that future episode. Uh, recently went to um, uh, an, an event organised by the Ella Baker School of Transformative Organising on a very similar topic and there were very interesting discussions had there as well. So we've got a lot of material on this on this issue and it's, it's a really important one, I think. So... If you are going to be around uh, Labour Party Conference and around the Fringe, then uh, do come to that and, uh, and check it out. And if you can't make it, just uh, keep your ears open for the episode. So that's episode 16 of Labour Days on uh, the history of political education in the workers' movement coming almost live from the world transformed. And that about brings us to the end of the uh, episode today. It only remains for me to thank uh, my co-hosts Ed and Ellie, our producer Liam. Particular thanks should go to our resident researcher Holly Smith, who did a lot of really great work pulling together um, some research and background reading for today's episode. And of course, thanks again to uh, Lois Wiener for um, giving us her time uh, when she was in London. Um, check us out on all your favourite social media platforms of choice and we'll see you next time. This episode of Labour Days was brought to you by the combined legacies of Hal Draper, Tom Mann and Bill Brown. Additional research was provided by Eleanor Marks and our producer was James Connolly.